0: For the society I live in, it's 9-11. The attack on New York City's Twin Towers. A couple of generations ago, it was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. In other countries around the world, it's a devastating subway bombing, a declaration of war, or the death of some nationally loved celebrity. There are moments in each culture that create what we call flashbulb memories. Events so catastrophic that nearly every member of the culture will tell you they remember where they were when they first heard the news. But nearly half of us are mistaken. We rely on memory to make our decisions. What are the consequences when our memories fail us? What does that mean for our own decision-making? And what does that mean for the future of criminal justice? Can blockchain's immutability help us? I'm Peter Kay, and this is Bittgenstein's Table. I'm founder and full-stack dApp developer at Dappiness Dev Studio, and development consultant at UTXO Consulting. But the views on this podcast are my own, not the views of those entities. And remember that none of this is specific financial advice. It's informational entertainment. So as always, I hope it helps you learn and enjoy your life. One week after September 11th, 2001. Scientists spoke with over 3,000 people in New York City and a handful of other cities across the United States. One year later, they spoke to the same people again. Three years later, they did it again. And ten years later, they spoke with the same people one last time. After one year, only 40% of people accurately remembered their emotions at the time of the September 11th attacks. People did better than 40% when it came to facts. They were 63% consistent with the details of how they heard. But three years after that event, the consistency had dropped to 57%. In other words, put a bunch of people who remember 9-11 in a room only three years later and ask them the circumstances they were in when they heard about the attack, and nearly half of the details you will hear them reply back to you are false. More than half of their reports on their emotional responses will be false. One day, back when I worked at ICO Alert, I brought this up with a colleague of mine, Joshua Bryant. Hey, Josh, "'You know how everyone says they remember where they were when they heard about 9-11?' "'Oh, I remember where I was,' Josh replied. "'But I proceeded to tell Josh about the memory study.' He frowned. "'Are our memories really that bad?' It was only then that Josh revealed that his wife and he had different recollections of where they were when they heard. "'Our memories really are that bad, even when we insist they're correct.' even when we can't imagine them possibly being incorrect, even when we feel like they are seared into our very souls. In crypto, the bears forget the emotions of bull markets. The bulls forget the emotions of bear markets. Nearly everyone is shocked whenever things turn around, but soon afterwards, it's business as usual. Nearly everyone acts like they knew it was inevitable. We forget the past. And especially, we forget our own thoughts and emotions back in the past. Sure, we remember the details that are repeated frequently on social media and in the news, but we often only selectively remember what we felt, what we thought, and why we made the decisions that we did. You'll often hear someone rebuke someone else's observations of the past with a phrase like, hindsight is 2020." Sometimes it's just a nice way to say, our memories suck. One of the reasons I enjoy history so much is that it is our experience of the past, whether our collective experience or our personal experience, that informs how we make decisions in the present, decisions for the future. It's a tired maxim that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But it's true to a point. By remembering our culture's history, we can avoid its mistakes. Of course, generations still repeat the mistakes of their parents for the plain reason that they didn't live through the consequences. Most teenagers never listen to lessons about responsibility and other things, and they have to learn them on their own. As Kurt Vonnegut said, we're doomed to repeat the past, no matter how much history we learn. For that is what it means to be alive. I suppose both sentiments are true up to a point, but we at least learn from our personal history, right? From the mistakes we've made in our own lives? Our memory of even our personal history is unreliable. This is why many traders recommend keeping a journal. You may think you remember what your thoughts and feelings were when Bitcoin first hit $1,000. You may think you remember your feelings in the winter that followed, or in the 2017 ICO craze and the accompanying bull run. Do you really remember the confidence you likely felt that the drops in early 2018 were dips or healthy corrections? Do you really remember your reaction to the few people on Twitter or whatever platform saying otherwise? Do you really remember what your reasoning was for the actions you took, the trades you made? the coins you held or sold? If you haven't written them down, you're probably wrong about a bunch of those things. The 9-11 studies participants looked at their own handwritten accounts, taken within one week after the attack, and they swore that they must have lied. I don't know why I would lie a week after the attack, they would say, but I remember the day clear as crystal. I must have lied ten years ago. I must have lied. And let's be honest. A lot of the advice we received when we were kids or teens, and the advice some of us now give, is nothing but bullshit concocted by the desperate need our minds feel to draw principles from our experiences, to make our life into one great story with lines of meaning through it. Most of the time we draw these principles from experiences that conveniently align. We mostly discard the experiences which don't fit in so well, or we even modify those experiences like Brian Williams in the helicopter that was definitely not shot at listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast Revisionist History for more on that story like the witness who swears their kidnapper is in the courtroom only to have DNA evidence prove otherwise later and like many Americans when it comes to 9-11 every time we access a memory every time we retell a story to ourselves or to someone else we are prone to changing it a little Our minds are not resistant to change. Our memories are not immutable. Don't trust your memory too much. And honestly, don't trust other people's memories too much. Our knowledge of our collective history as humans is unreliable too. The victors write the history books. The scholars fill in the gaps with conjectures and theories that take hold, like the ridiculous theory of the Aryan migration, which was invented by a German in the 1800s and somehow is still in our history textbooks. Don't even get me started on that. And the propagandists then add their manipulative spin to all of it. And all along the way, errors and misinterpretations can come in. And then there are autobiographies. I love reading them. The narratives that emerge, the patterns and trends that people push onto their own life stories, they're captivating, and they're probably false. (laughs) In fact, nothing is perfectly reliable. This doesn't just apply to history and autobiography and memory. The idea of science seems solid, right? I like the scientific method. But as we heard from Manuel back a few episodes ago, The politics of the people and organizations involved, the humanness of the people and organizations involved, mean that we end up with a product that is only mostly reliable. History is the same way. Going back to the primary sources is great, but it still means we read accounts and biographies and records written by people with agendas, with different worldviews, with languages that we don't fully understand anymore, with cognitive flaws. Many people spend a long time searching for a foundation, for something 100% reliable, right? The system that works when you're trading, the science that explains, the facts that explain, the story that explains whatever you're seeing, the magic sauce that can predict the future. History and science and memory, they all help us make decisions for the future, but they'll all fail us sometimes. This is especially concerning in the courts of law. If you haven't seen the show Prison Break by now, I doubt you ever will. But still, it's only fair to warn you there are minor spoilers ahead. The popular and decent TV show, at least in the first season, features a man, Michael, who commits an armed robbery just to be sent to the jail where his brother Lincoln is awaiting execution. Michael has the good fortune, before he commits the crime, of having access to the architectural blueprints of the prison. He uses his significant mental faculties to convert the blueprints into an artful full-torso tattoo before he commits the crime that sends him to Fox River Penitentiary. Now, Lincoln is innocent, but there is video evidence of the crime. The people who framed him, who include the Vice President of the United States and people much more powerful than her, blackmailed Lincoln into killing the man. And indeed, Lincoln went to the scene, a parking garage, but there he found the man was already dead inside a car. Lincoln never fired a shot. The people who framed him had the video edited to add a few frames of Lincoln pulling the trigger, to add the powder flash, to add the recoil, to add the sound of the gunshot. Ultimately, an expert in the show detects it's a fake by analyzing the sound of the gunshot, but it takes him a lot of skill and a lot of work to do so. Lincoln was convicted on and nearly executed on an edited video that was accepted as evidence. You've all probably seen the video that comedian and now director Jordan Peele put out. It's him speaking as former President Barack Obama. You see Barack Obama's face, and then eventually you see both their faces next to each other, saying exactly the same things, with Jordan Peele's voice imitating the President's, as their mouths move in sync, as their facial expressions move in sync. It's not quite right, but most casual observers would accept the Barack Obama side of the video as an official speech from the President if Peele didn't reveal himself on the other side. And the video took a very short time to create. We can no longer be sure that videos are legitimate. One of the use cases for immutable ledgers is provably genuine evidence. By genuine, I don't mean exactly that. I don't mean fully reliable, we've talked about that before. I mean evidence about which we can be sure that certain parameters are true. We're doing significant work on things like proof of location and proof of time. Ultimately, a sort of proof of origin could be established for video evidence. Multiple angles, filmed by devices talking to one another, using proof of location and proof of time protocols matched with a hash of the resultant video files, these things could help establish that a video is not the product of some editing studio. Technology would have to advance quickly indeed for an attacker to cause all of the filming devices at once to incorporate the attacker's desired changes on the fly before the hash is posted to a blockchain. These kind of developments are important. There are several projects on multiple platforms pursuing them, because if we lose entire categories of evidence, such as videos, we'll need to rely more on human testimony. And human testimony really isn't reliable. If half of our brains get wrong the time they heard about 9-11, how many unintentionally false testimonies do you think are out there in court records? People who either remembered things differently than they actually happened? or gave in to the pressure of other witnesses and convinced themselves that they remembered things differently. Forced confessions are a problem. Michelle Murphy was in jail for 20 years for killing her infant, but DNA evidence showed otherwise. When her new hearing came up, the Tulsa County District Attorney filed to dismiss. He knew the state of Oklahoma could not prove her guilt with the evidence at hand. In fact, the judge looked directly at her and said, you're innocent. In 2004, Kevin Fox was interrogated for 14 hours and finally confessed to murdering his daughter who was 3 years old. But after 8 months in jail, Fox was released when, thanks to DNA evidence, the real killer was found. In 2000, Carithian Bell, who has been diagnosed as mentally retarded, was questioned for 50 hours, eventually confessed to murdering his mother and later said he had been hit so hard he fell from his chair and he thought That if he gave them the confession they wanted, they would stop interrogating him so that he could explain his case to a judge, and then he would be released. These are the cases we know about. Surely these were better than the famed trials by ordeal, where if you drown, well, then you're innocent. But we still have a long way to go. I'm hopeful that immutable ledgers of verifiable evidence with various proofs attached will change our justice system for the better. We've made progress since the days when one corrupt man's two-minute testimony at Old Bailey's could send a poor man to the gallows. DNA evidence helps, though it can be planted, or even lab results manipulated somehow. But as we build more and more sophisticated machines for editing and producing photos and video and voices, and eventually fingerprints and DNA, we will enter a new crisis of unreliable evidence unless we develop a solution. Immutability is one of the key promises of blockchains. Maybe someday we'll have videos that we can trust, that we can prove are original. Maybe someday we'll be able to put other evidence in an immutable ledger, a place where evidence is insurmountably difficult to plant, to modify, or to delete. There's another thing that's scary about legal proceedings. How many times have we found meaning in circumstantial evidence simply because of our inclination to push all details into a narrative? Simply because of the shortcuts we have to take to understand the world? We need a justice system, of course. But how many thousands of people are being convicted just because of circumstantial evidence that fits into the prosecution's claims? This is why privacy is important. You may not care so much about the privacy of your own DNA, for instance, until some freak coincidence places a piece of trash with your DNA at the scene of a crime. We'll talk more about DNA, Ancestry.com, the Golden State Killer, and genetic diseases in an episode coming soon. For now, just remember, one of the reasons privacy is so important is because non-criminals can easily be accused of criminal acts simply because there are publicly knowable facts out there, facts about them that are not private, that end up forced into a narrative by prosecutors. Now, I understand the irony here. My entire podcast is building narrative out of assorted source materials and finding principles from them, but that's the only way we can process information. That's the only way we can integrate things to change our lives. It doesn't mean that it's infallible. Be careful believing what you hear. The slightest shred of evidence nowadays is enough to convict someone in the eyes of the people. And sadly, sometimes that leads to being enough to convict them in the eyes of the court. And be careful how much of your own memory you trust. Because our memories change, we modify stories as we go along. Not maliciously, not necessarily because of character flaws, but just because that's how human memory works. If you want to remember something, write it down. Keep a trading journal. It's what I've begun doing. If you have any other ideas on how to counteract the cognitive biases that get in the way of good decision-making, and that threaten some aspects of our future as our technological capacities grow, drop me a line. I'm on Twitter as X. Bitgenstein is banned and I'm on Medium, and Peepeth, and elsewhere as Bittgenstein. It'll be my great pleasure soon to have Christian Kamir on as a guest. We'll be discussing security tokens. I, uh, may have been a bit naive previously to think that the security token model was going to democratize, to align interests. Multiple token systems are being created, and a lot of other things are going on that have kind of backpedaled from that push. And, uh, I'm excited to hear what Christian has to say. As always, thanks for listening. It's difficult to get news about the show out. I'm busy developing. Please leave a review, leave a rating, tell your friends. And I'll see you next week on Wittgenstein's Table, the Crypto Philosophy Podcast.